Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Manchester's indie rock and roll station XS Manchester The XS Manchester Long Player An iconic album in full With Jim Salverson XS Manchester Hello, hello, I'm Jim Salverson And this is another XS Manchester Long Player Another classic album from the indie rock era Dissected in full by one of the people who made it On this podcast, we are talking Shed 7, a maximum high, a cornerstone album of the Britpop era and a brilliant feel-good record from start to finish. I'm going to be going through that album with Rick Witter from the band, who tells some brilliant stories about the meaning behind some of the songs, the whirlwinds surrounding the band in the mid-90s, and a fantastic story about where the album was written. I'll tell you one thing, it wasn't in some flash London studio. You've got to stick around to hear Rick's story shortly. If you like this podcast, if this is your first long player, there's plenty more to go out in the series. Your favourite artist talking about your favourite album, so go and check back in the timeline and have a look at some of the shows that are available now. If it's Britpop you're into, then I'd recommend checking out maybe Ocean Colour Scene, Mosley Shoals, Nigel Clark from Dodgy talking Free Piece Suite, maybe embrace Richard McNamara when he was talking about the Goodwill Out as well. There's a few to get yourself stuck into. If you like them and you like this, make sure you leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. A few nice words on iTunes or Spotify go a long way, but most importantly, enjoy this fascinating chat with Rick Witter from Shed 7 talking a maximum high. Hi, Jim. You okay? Yeah, really good, thanks. Good time to talk to you because Maximum High, just reaching its 25th anniversary, it's getting a re-release alongside that. It's available on pre-order now. We're talking in October of 2021, so it's out properly towards the end of the year. We're going to talk about this album in detail and go into the making and the creation of it, but how has it felt looking back at this 25th anniversary? Does it even feel like you've ever sort of been away from these songs because you've played like the likes of going for gold a lot over the last 25 years I guess so they've always been with you so do you have that opportunity to kind of step back and be retrospective about this album it's a bit weird because I'm only 24 so I don't know how this happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a period in our career where we were hitting the sweet spot so yeah as you rightly say we've been touring ever since and a lot of those songs are included in the set list. So, yeah, it's like it's never really been away mm. in, a, in a strange way. And also, it's been 25 years, but it really doesn't seem like it to me. It's a weird kind of feeling to, to know that we were all 25 years older and, and we're very fortunate as, as a band, I think, that we can still go out now and play songs off the album and it gets such 
as much as a great reaction as it did at the time and perhaps mm. even more because I do think people love a little bit of the nostalgia. I think music is somewhere where it can take you where nothing else can. You can hear a song that you haven't heard for a long time and it'll take you right back to the time where you first heard it or or you got married or you did this. You know, it's great for memory's sake, which I think is another reason why people still love coming to see us because they get that nostalgia, but they also get to see a rock and roll band playing it with passion mm. just as much as we did at the time. That must mean a lot, the fact that people are still really into the music, that they want to come and celebrate this anniversary with you. It's not the first anniversary of this album that you've celebrated. You did the Maximum High tour, I think it would have been for the 15th anniversary. Is yeah. that special to you, the fact that people still cherish these songs? Well, as I said, we're very lucky because we, we go and do a gig and it doesn't really matter where we play or what night of the week we play. I mean, usually weekend nights are a little bit more loose because mm. everyone's off work or whatever, but it doesn't really matter that to us. We can play anywhere at any time and people just look like they're having a really great time, you know, and there's nothing better than just seeing a, cra a room full of people singing every word back at you. Mm. Uh, I think we've got to the point in our career where People know exactly what they're going to get when they come to see us and they can just relax then and just have a great evening out. And when you're seeing people of our age bringing their teenage kids with them and they're looking like they're having just as much time as the parents, then you just can't go wrong. As long as people are there who want to see that, then we'll carry on doing it. You mentioned that this was a musical sweet spot for yourself and the band. Now, undoubtedly, commercially, it was one of your more successful albums and the singles did really well in terms of their chart success. Did it feel like creatively for you it was a sweet spot? Do you look back on this album and go, yep, that's it, that's when I was firing? No, not really. We've never, ever, since before we were signed, since, since we began, really, we just write songs and mm. then we decide where they'll go and if one's good enough to become a single or be an album track or or a b-side or whatever looking back i can i can't really remember doing anything different to any other album that we've released with the maximum high i think the only difference probably was the fact we'd had our debut album out and that, that had done okay and it was time to step it up you know production wise i think there was a little bit of a worry within the record label. Could we come up with the goods again and make it slightly better? But we didn't really worry about that. We just knew that we had to go away and start writing a set of new songs. I do remember because we'd done the big first album campaign, we wanted to come back slightly stronger. So we kind of walked around town going, we're all new. I do remember that it became a bit of a catchphrase, we're all new. And I think at some point the album was going to actually be called All New. Uh, I'm glad it wasn't. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we just found ourselves back in York after touring around the world with the task of doing it all again, but a lot quicker. I mean, obviously, every band would say this. You, you form a band, you write a set of songs, and perhaps you have a few years to do that. And then suddenly that's released, it does okay, and then you've got a year to do the next one, and you've got, you've got to start from scratch. So there is always that kind of pressure and that becomes known as second album kind of pressure thing mm. but we didn't really have that I think we, we breezed through that difficult second album syndrome quite well really the bizarrely the way that it was the way that it was written was very shed seven in the sense that we don't like to do things in a normal manner a lot of bands if they have a bit of success with the first album would decamp to London if they're not from there already and uh, get caught up in party scenes and and whatnot and use flash studios to rehearse in whereas we 
always loved the idea that we lived in York and it was an, an ace thing to be able to go and do your partying, but then also come home and see friends and family and just kind of get out of that mm. band thing in a way. I think that's kind of kept us level-headed enough to still be here doing it now. So we found ourselves ridiculously writing the album and rehearsing the album on a potato farm on the outskirts of York. <laughs> how, how rock and roll is that? I did hear this, and I, I wasn't sure whether it was one of those internet facts that aren't actually facts that someone's just stuck on Wikipedia at some point and seeing how many people fell for it. And I thought that was really yep. interesting to hear that it was in a potato plant, because when you listen to this album, lyrically, I think it's a pretty positive album in its outlook. It's upwards looking, and that doesn't seem to fit the scenario of it being created in... I mean, I'll be honest with you, I've never been to a potato farm, so I don't know what it's like, but I imagine it's not particularly glamorous. Well, this is it, you see, because as I say, we used to walk around at this at this point saying we're all new. We had a really positive outlook on things, which I think was important at that time. And as you rightly say, coming through the lyrics, I mean, songs getting better, going for gold and maximum high, you know, it's all kind of quite upbeat. But the scenario of that came about because we'd lost where we used to rehearse. I think that had shut down. So we were kind of looking for somewhere in or around York where we could go and, and thrash things out and make a lot of noise. And we were kind of struggling to find anywhere at the time. And I think Tom, our bass player, was quite friendly with this lad whose father owned a potato plant just on the outskirts of York. And he said, oh, there's a couple of disused offices on the site where you can make as much noise as you want and you can use it for free. So we kind of thought, well, it's a win-win, really. So, yes, so we were in this kind of disused office block set up, bashing it all out. But while we were doing that, you could look out the window and basically just see loads of tractors bringing in trailerfuls of potatoes that were being bagged up in this <laughs> next to the place we were playing in. But it didn't slow us down, you know. I mean, as I say, we, we wrote a lot of good songs there. I mean, to be honest, me and Paul would get together at each other's houses first and get the basic bones of the song mm. together, and then we'd take it there and we'd all kind of rehearse it and 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 whip it into some type of song shape. And funnily enough. The most weird scenario about all of this is the very site where that potato plant was is now a B&Q and the exact spot where the office building where we wrote a lot of that stuff was is now where the garden sheds are being sold in B&Q. Wow. I think we need to start a campaign to get a blue plaque on one of those <laughs> sheds <laughs> get erected. Um, I, that's really interesting. I mean, did that keep you grounded? Because I remember reading an interview with you where you described the period, I guess, after the release of this album as being all your words were top of the pops, Chris Evans, Richard and Judy and flying around the world, which is a kind of pretty rock and roll statement and clearly a bit of a whirlwind following the release of this album. But I guess those images of you guys writing and recording and preparing in this disused office in a potato farm did that help to keep you grounded over this period? Yeah, I guess it did, yeah. And, and as I've touched upon already, you know, not moving to London, not over-partying, it was important for us. You know, it's a two-hour train journey to get to the capital, so we'd go and do what we needed to do, but mm. always in the back of our minds was we're going to get to go home. You know, we'd, we had a, a really good, strong friend base in York that we'd grown up with because it's quite a small city as York. So, you know, we would go off and do the Top of the Pops and the Richard and the Judas and have a laugh and a bit of a party. And then we'd come home and our friends would be asking what it was like and what we did and what we got up to. But then they would equally just start saying, oh, well, I fixed this sink the other day at my job, you know? <laughs> so you'd, you'd be brought right back down to earth in a pub, you know, if we're all just sat in a pub having a chat. 
you're interested in what your mates are doing and they just happen to be a plumber or whatever or a decorator and then they're telling you stories about what happened to them so before you know it you just back down to where you were before you know and I think that was quite important and I do think that's why we're still here doing it now really. Going back to the recording of the album itself now it was a residential recording I think you spent three weeks in the studio putting it all together but then whilst it was being mixed you guys had to fly out to go and tour Japan how did that feel at the time? Did it feel like you were kind of leaving your creation, leaving your baby behind? Because this was before the days where someone could just email you an MP3 mix and go, this is what we've done. Is this OK? So was it a wrench to kind of go back on the road whilst you left your album with someone else? Did you want to be more hands on with that process? No, not particularly from what I remember. I think because we'd already had a, an album and we'd done a campaign, we knew the importance of going out and promoting yourself. And obviously it was the first time we'd been to Japan, so that was all very exciting, just being able to go there. And weirdly, every band would say this, you go to Japan and, and you, you suddenly think that you're in the Beatles because of the reaction. Mm. You, you arrive at the airport and there's just loads of screaming people there and you're thinking, well... But then you realise that every other band gets it and it becomes a bit more kind of normal to accept. But yeah, I think we would have known that we would have eventually gone back and finished off the process. So it was probably a, a nice little break from it, to be honest with you, because things do become a little bit overpowering and intense, mm. especially if you're just working on it on a day-to-day basis. So from my memory, no there, was no, there was no issue there. I think we kind of knew what we'd recorded was going to go down okay anyway it fit the times really well we knew it was positive so it was more an excitement really knowing that we'd done that difficult second album without it being difficult in any way so it was just all very exciting from what I can remember. (laughs) I was looking back at some of the early reviews of this album and previous to this album as well and there are a lot of comparisons particularly by the enemy comparing yourselves to the Smiths albeit obviously a far more positive outlooking Smiths than the Smiths were themselves, which isn't something I have to say I'd necessarily picked up previously when listening to your music until I went back and read these reviews and listened again. It's kind of like, okay, you you can kind of hear the hints of it there. Were they one of the bands that you considered a big influence on your sound? Oh yeah, massively so. Yeah. I mean, we're growing up at school, we were the kind of weirdos. There's maybe (laughs) five or six of us in our year group who liked the Smiths and I had the full on quiff when I was a teenager. So, yeah, we were the strange kids who liked the indie music. But, yeah, yeah, massive influence. I mean, our first single, Mark, is very kind of, it's got, it leans itself very much to to a Smith's sounding record. But then you get bands like Gene who come out at the same time who sound even more like the Smiths. So, yeah, I think with us, we, all four of us, had very eclectic music tastes, but we can kind of try and combine it all to create our own kind of sound. So, you know, Alan the Drug be listening to Dexes a lot and Style Council. Uh, I'd be more into the Smiths and the Rolling Stones. Paul was quite into Simple Mind. So there's a lot of different kind of things being listened to on tour buses or in people's houses and at parties. So yeah, definitely the Smiths had an influence. I think Mark Sutherland reviewed it and said it was the it was the album the second coming should have been because it was all around the Stone Roses which were coming back with their mm. second album. And there's a track on a Max and Mike called Lies, which which sounds very Stone Roses second coming era, I think. But yeah, there's there's lots of lots of different little bits of music and styles put on there. Yeah. 
it's interesting you mentioned the Stone Roses. Um, I'm going to ask you in a moment to pick a couple of tracks on the album. We do with, with everyone that does the long player. They can be your favourite tracks. They can be tracks that spark particular memories or things that you want to rediscuss or rediscover. So whatever you want to pick is fine. But I just want to pick one before that. And it was interesting. Again, going back and rediscovering this album for myself, I kind of spotted how Roses-esque the final track is off the album, Parallel Lines, which is an epic tune. Were you making a statement when you put that on the album? Because it's not every band that gets to put a nine-minute slice of Britpop epicness to finish off their <laughs> album. So well, there must have been quite a conscious decision to kind of do that. Well, yeah, I think now, obviously, it's it's what it is and where it is. But I think at the time, maybe there was a discussion where that should have been the first track on the album rather than the last track on the album, the way it starts and the way it crashes in. And it would have been quite a brave move to put like an almost nine minute song as your first song. Um, and also the fact that our first album had a long song at the end of it as well. It would have kind of been quite a cool thing to come back with your second album and have the long song at the very beginning. But I just remember that being real good fun, creating it. You know, I mean, it's still a great song to play live just because of the nature of the fact it starts very slow and it, it takes ages for it to crank into gear. But the, the build-up is an important part of that song. You know, people, when it eventually does crash in, it's almost like the money shots happened four minutes in, but there's still another five-odd minutes of the song to go. You know, it's, mm. it's, a, it's all about getting high, you know, which is a, a, a good thing. Pick a couple of tracks off the album that you love or hate, Rick, or just barks off memories that from the recording that you remember. Um, well, I'd go, I'd, I'd opt for more of the album tracks, to be honest, because of the fact that we do play Going for Gold on standby, sure. Getting Better Boy. We play them live a lot. So I don't know how much of a, if you're a Shed 7 fan, you maybe know this, but I don't know how many people would be aware of the fact that a song called Magic Streets is actually about visiting prostitutes i think if people kind of re-listen to the song after knowing that it might make a little bit more sense in their head and i'm not suggesting for one minute that that's something that i do but <laughs> I, I heard a rumor or there was rumors and this wasn't just this particular place there was lots of rumors around york at this point if there was a red light in a window it meant it, it was a brothel and you know this could be a terraced house or it could so basically, mm. we heard a rumour in the early 90s that in, right in the middle of York City Centre, where the shops are, there was an early learning centre. And above that was a brothel. So hence, we went to the early learning centre with the money that I lent you. Basically, it's a story that I came up with in my head. None of it's factual, where somebody loses the virginity to a prostitute above the early learning centre. So when it's saying, so put your anorak on, that means a condom put your hooded cloak on, that means a condom. It's basically singing about celebrating going to have mm. sex. So there is a kind of seedy side to Shed 7 that perhaps people don't really get as much, which people need to know. <laughs> as a songwriter, how bothered are you about the context in which people listen to your songs? Because as you say, if you're not a Shed 7 fan, you probably not picked up on that before, but you might love the song anyway. So does it matter yeah. to you that someone knows what the lyrics mean or knows the depth or is it all about their interpretation uh well yeah a bit of both to be honest with you jim i think it kind of almost pleases me when i have to explain myself um because perhaps maybe i i keep a little bit back mm. and don't 
as obvious as it should be. I mean, some songs are just obvious what they mean, but yeah, others are a bit more kind of elusive. But yeah, I'm a big believer in people can take what they want from it because at the end of the day, we've created it. And if people want to take that away and enjoy it as much as they want to within their own mindset, then it's nothing to do with me anymore. You know, I just want people to enjoy listening to it because I've grown up as a human being from the age I can't remember where I just love music. And if I get into a song, I won't sit there singing along with it, thinking too much about the inner depth of it all lyrically. I'll just sing along with it because I love doing that, you know. So, mm. I mean, there's another song on the album called Lady Man, uh, which written in 1995, I think we wrote that one. It was a bit of a weird subject to write about, but that's all about wanting to change your sex because you're not happy in the skin that you're in, you know. So if you're a man and you decide you want to be a woman or whatever, you know. That's quite so, a forward-thinking topic to be tackling in the mid-90s. Well, I mean, nowadays thought, it doesn't feel so, so. Yeah, I thought so too, but it wasn't really picked up on at the time. I think people just laughed because the first lyric in the song is, I'm a lady, I'm a man, trying to do the best I possibly can. You know, I don't think people really picked up on the the kind of seriousness of the nature of the story that I was trying to say. I think people were just kind of, I'm a lady, I'm a man. The chorus in that is it's quite heartrending, really. Mm. If you're not comfortable in your own skin, then you can't change it. You know, my heart is a plaster cast and with broken glass. You know, it's it's all... Yeah, so I don't know if people picked up on that at the time. Um, it seemed to be a kind of a lost song on that album, Lady Man, to be honest. But yeah, there's an awful lot of kind of very upbeat stuff on there too. So, it, you know, it's everything. It's sex changing, it's drugs, it's mm. sex, it's uh, getting high, it's feeling like you're getting better, you know, it's winning medals. How are you pulling your inspiration for this then, Rick? Because obviously you said Magic Streets isn't from personal experience, but it's kind of a story woven out of something that you heard. Lady Man, I'm, I mean, I'm assuming it's not from personal experience as well. So is it for you, is it kind of like you have a starting point and then you generate a story on from that? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's, I'll just build on an idea that I have yet. Yeah, so I could be sat on a train and I can overhear a conversation down the carriage and someone might just say something, a phrase, or be discussing a certain topic and I'll get interested in it and I won't eavesdrop any longer but I'll jot down the idea that I've started to formulate through hearing that conversation mm. and then that will become something so with Magic Streets because it was a rumour for such a long time that there was a brothel above the early learning centre it kind of gets ingrained in your mind or it does to me maybe not everyone else because no one else wrote a song about it but I'll I'll kind of take that away and 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 start creating something out of that and that's what art is isn't it at the end of the day it's you know I got into trouble I know this isn't maximum high but the the, the previous album change giver it had a song called ocean pie on it and that was my perception of what it might feel like to be on heroin I've never done heroin but because you read books about artists and you read about their experiences all you have to do is read a book about Keith Richards and you you, you kind of get to know what heroin might do to people yeah so I wrote a song based on what my thoughts would feel like to be on heroin so what's it like to let the feeling flow it shakes me cold you know and I did say at the time what that song was about and then I do remember one evening I was walking through York City Centre with a few friends and three people who looked a little bit rough took massive umbrage at me about writing a song about something that I hadn't experienced myself, which right. I thought was quite a bizarre 
you know everyone's got the right to free speech and and to imagine what things might be like if i wanted to write a song about what it'd feel like to jump off a cliff i don't need to go and jump off that <laughs> cliff first and the chances are if i did jump off that cliff i'm not going to get the chance to write what it felt like am i yeah i mean quite happily write a song about going to the moon for example i don't think um, neil armstrong is yep. going to be having a pop at you is he <laughs> <laughs> there you go you see yeah. rick been fascinated to talk to you about maximum high i want to kind of go back to where we started and talk about how it feels now 25 years on since the album's release and as we said earlier these songs have kind of stayed with you you reworked a few of them for the 15th anniversary you've played them at gigs over the last 25 years when you go back and listen to the album and it's an original form how do you feel about it do you listen to it and go I'd wish we'd done that differently or are you just immensely proud of creating this cornerstone of Britpop I haven't listened to it for an awful long time, to be honest with you. I don't feel, I feel like I don't need to mm. um, because we do play a lot of the songs off the album a lot. I just don't ever feel the need to just put it on and listen to it. Um, and, you know, the songs now, when we play them, they're just, they're just as meaty or maybe even more so than how we used to play them in the 90s because we've just got older and we've learned more and we, yeah. we're more relaxed on stage playing it because we are older and we know that what we do is good. So I'm not going to play Bully Boy on a Monday night in Blackburn and then go home on a Tuesday and listen to the record. I'm just not going to do it. But, you know, come back to me in about 30 years and uh, and I might have put it on. Okay. <laughs> do it for the 55th anniversary. Uh, Rick, pleasure <laughs> to speak to you. The campaign to get the blue plaque in the York B&Q shed section starts here. <laughs> I'm on it. But really nice good to man. speak to you. Cheers, mate. Cheers. <laughs> Access Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Access Manchester. We're done. Cheers to your ears. That is it for today's Excess Long Player. Thank you very much for listening. He tells a good story, does Rick. And it was a good story about a fantastic album, Shed 7, Maximum High. If that has inspired you to go back and listen to this album in full, you'll find a link on Spotify to the whole album in the podcast description, along with more details as to where you can find more from the Excess Long Player. Make sure you've hit subscribe or follow because there'll be another show next week. And there's plenty more in the back catalogue to get your teeth stuck into as well. I'll see you next time for another classic album dissected on the Excess Long Player. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, Excess Manchester.